Yes. Can you hear me okay? Is that working? I don't have a voice that carries very well, so especially without a cup of coffee in the morning. Okay. Good evening. What an unusual honor it is for someone to be invited from film and from media into the sacred spaces of science. I'm excited, though, that scientists who are Christians are looking at media and the film industry, seeking a new expression, new partnerships, and engagement with the film industry that touches every edge of our lives. Hollywood has changed a lot. Twenty years ago, things looked a lot different. People who entered the industry who were Christians generally either exercised silence or they were very, very cautious. The school that I work with, LA Film Studies Center, began 20 years ago. And so the way that we would work with the students when they would begin to enter the industry was to help them to go in and listen to the environments in certain ways and know what they could say and what they couldn't. And while we still do that, because we have to have that sensitivity, there is so much more freedom, and they're usually so surprised that there is such an openness to who, that they, who they are. People tend to be either just very curious, like, oh, so you're, one, you're a Christian, you know, what's that about? Or they tend to just accept it. There still is rejection, so that is still there, but it has changed. I think one of the things that has made the big difference is that we have a different culture today that it's been so long since people actually were, everyone was going to church, say before the 60s, that people then rejected the church and now there has been this silence that people have no history, they don't even know what Christianity is about, and so they're almost more free to be accepting of it or to be curious about it. So it's kind of an interesting time and an interesting context, but a great time to be in Hollywood. Of course, there are a lot of other reasons also. I would estimate that there are probably about 10,000 Christians in Hollywood, and I think that that's pretty conservative. It's, this is at all levels, and I get this number from just looking at a few people and things that I know. So for example, Bel Air Presbyterian Church has about 5,000 members. They say that 2,500 are in the film industry. Again, all levels of the film industry. Faithful Central Church, an African-American church that is huge with 11,000 people, say that about a quarter of their people are involved in the entertainment industry. That's, again, close to 2,500. And then you look at all of the Catholics that are very involved in Hollywood, but really passionate about working with their people, uh, pastas in Bible studies, pasta in prayer. Um, there are many, many of them involved in it. And then almost all of the churches I know, large and small, whether they have nine services, like I think Oasis does, to a small church like my own, have people throughout that are involved in the industry. So there are a lot of people today, and it's pretty exciting at this time. We would like to have this kind of lightning impact, but that has not quite happened. It's been a little more gentle. 
I would suggest that believers in the industry are engaging the industry in a couple of different ways. First of all, there, is the, there are the content makers and the creatives. Now, these are usually the writers, the directors, the producers, in fact, at, are at the top. They are the ones that, that hire the directors and that determine whether they really like the scripts or not. So all of those creatives go into making the content of what the film is. And this is a much harder place to be, of course. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is in the United States, only about 400 to 600 films are made per year that make it into the theaters. That's a very limited number, so the competition is absolutely fierce. So you take the competition of everybody in general, and then you take the percentage of Christians, and it's really very, very small. So we're very encouraged to see how many people are entering the industry at this time as believers and even being those content makers, be at, given the percentage of people that are going to be there. Um, there are one of the things I want to mention, because people have a certain assumption, is that if you're a screenwriter, you expect that you are the content maker, and people think, wow, let's get all those screenwriters out there which indeed we want to do. But a thing to note is that the screenwriters really don't have that much power. Once their script is accepted, say, by a major studio, then that major studio decides whether they really want that version or not. And if they don't want that version, or maybe they don't want to pay that screenwriter that much, then they will get other screenwriters to come and do a new draft, and maybe do a new draft. And so your film that you wrote may look very different once it gets on the screen than what you wrote. So once again, being a content maker doesn't mean you really do have all of the power in Hollywood. But we're excited about what we're seeing in the people that are getting there. Secondly, and even really more importantly, filmmaking is a collaborative art. And it is an art, and it is collaborative. The more people can work together and bring all of the different parts of their art together that creates a film, so the writer, you've got the director who has his art or her art, and then you have editors, and editing is an art. You've got these screens before you, and you're deciding the flow, the beauty, the way they work together. So at all levels, you have these artists collaborating, and it's extremely important that they be able to work well together. And this, I think, has really been one of the things and one of the places that we've made a big difference. Christians that are, have gone to Hollywood, and I know I see with our own students in the internships that they do, are known because they are ethical people. And you don't find a lot of ethical people in Hollywood. And believe it or not, that's really respected. But they're not only ethical people. We have these young people entering Hollywood that are just such hard workers, and that's really recognized also. But you know they're also kind, and kindness goes such a long way because there's so much competition, and everybody is trying to make it there, to have people working in this collaborative art that can be kind and hardworking and excellent at what they do and talented is an amazing thing. And so great things are happening with many of them. How do Christians succeed in Hollywood? By those very things. Excellence, hard work, servant hearts, 
being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And we always emphasize that wise as serpents because you really do have to have a lot of awareness, a lot of strength, and not just that innocence, and not just that submissiveness. Sometimes it gets misunderstood as a servant heart. And all in all, then all of that creates this faithful presence that we can have. And this faithful presence makes a big difference. In Hollywood, gatekeepers are reached through relationships, not by pedigree. And the gatekeepers are the ones that are all the major decision makers. In his book, To Change the World, James Davidson Hunter challenges our cherished assumptions that the world can change one person at a time and or by grassroots. Citing history, he says that indeed this has never even been the case. Instead, the world has always been changed from the top down by gatekeepers, institutions, networks, and the like. His challenge is, di is directed specifically to Christians, citing mission statements of Christian colleges and universities, ministries, churches, and the like. Now, while I'm not really ready to throw out grassroots movements, Hunter's point is that Christians must be in positions of power in order to change things. And indeed, this is happening. There are Christians in Hollywood who have garnered great respect and indeed some measured authority. Ralph Winter is producing at a major level with um, the X-Men series, with Planet of the Apes, with the Fantastic Four, and he has a, a uh, an amount of authority. John Lee Hancock, uh, who directed The Blind Side, has directed a number of things, who really has a, a measured authority. Melanie Knox is the president, I'm sorry, not the president, she's the director of in, uh, distribu international distribution for Paramount Studios. Now that's a very, very key position, because in Hollywood, everything is bottlenecked at distribution. Distribution has all of the power when things go to theatrical release. And she's the international director all over the world. There they call her the digital queen. She was one of our alumni, and so I get to find out from her exactly how this works and what it looks like. It's also exciting to have a woman there, I have to say. Uh, Dan Lin is a tentpole producer and has produced big things like the big Sherlock Holmes film, the previous one, not the newest one, but many different uh, Terminator whatever the last number was. And then Devon Franklin is an African-American executive with Sony, one of the vice presidents, and has extreme amount of authority in Hollywood. It's been really fun to see uh, him work actually with one of my alums, who a, a young guy whose screen uh, play was just accepted by Sony that will be, it's supposed to be a tentpole film in the fairly near future. And it's David and Goliath. And he and his writing partner wrote it to be um, uh, very much an action-adventure story, um, story. And Devon Franklin, who was overseeing this, went and said, no, it needs to be more true to the biblical story. Isn't that interesting? And so it gave them permission to write it even more the way they wanted to write it. Then we have... Um, Scott Derrickson, who really does have a, quite a few films both out and coming out. He's a writer-director, and he um, has Sinister with Ethan Hawke coming out this year. 
Two Eyes with Charlize Theron, Devil's Knot with Reese Witherspoon. Now, this is all this year. He also has a film, Goliath, that is coming out. And so interestingly, he has had conversations with my friend Jake, who is writing David and Goliath, and they've talked about their different versions. So there is a lot that's coming together in different places in Hollywood that are so exciting. And indeed, we are becoming some of the gatekeepers. I'd like to talk a little bit about how we approach film theologically before we begin to think about how Christians in science may engage with Hollywood. It's very complex, and there are lots of different ways to view it. But doing theology involves both critical and, create and, and experiential thinking. Both of these sides are extremely important to engage in a film and be in a film in the way that it works and to receive it. Now, I'd like to look at uh, a particular approach just because I think it tends to be more helpful. But let's start with a quotation by C.S. Lewis because it really states how we enter into those films. He says, the first demand any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive. Get yourself out of the way. There's no good asking first whether the work before you deserves such a surrender. For until you have surrendered, you cannot possibly find out. Now, I'm going to show, share with you a grid that was done quite a few years ago by Robert Johnston in his book, Real Spirituality, which, by the way, if you really want to get just a good basic book about theology and film, this is really where to start. And this has been a textbook for many, many, many schools. But he sets up a grid and I want to say, this is a grid, mind you. It's not a hierarchy. And you scientists will get more what a grid is. I always have to explain to my students. Just because something is on a different place on this doesn't mean that it's lower or less than or less important than. But when we look at how we approach Hollywood, how I'm sorry, Hollywood, how we approach films, we have different ways that we enter into it. And this is described for critics and theologians, but really, it's the way that all of us as believers that come to it with a certain worldview view films when we enter into them. So the first one, and let's look at the, the grid and how it goes. Um, when we look at the bottom, it's where we began with theology, and then we began to look at the film. And you'll see that this goes up. And at the top, we begin with a film, and we go to theology. So the person who begins with theology begins with a very strong perspective that usually is also matched with the ethical end of the spectrum. So the ethical that goes to the aesthetic. And so in this lower box, we have the ones that are really approaching it very strongly and ethically, and then we move up to the more artistic at the other side. So what is avoidance? Well, avoidance is where we just avoid films altogether. We don't go to films. We don't want our families to go to films. And this is where I was at when I was a little girl. Uh, we didn't go to any movies. We did not have a television. And uh, I didn't see my first film until I was, I believe, in sixth grade, which was a, a children's film. And in, even then, it was several years later until I saw The Sound of Music. 
So we really avoided it altogether. And it's also at this level you see the boycotts. Years ago there was a big boycott with The Last Temptation of Christ. And then there was an other cot, they called it, with uh, the Da Vinci Code. So this is the stay away. The one that is really much more common among Christians and, and contemporary conservative Christians is the caution approach. The Christian viewer may watch movies, but really from a very clearly defined and religious stance. Now, interestingly enough, on the more liberal side of the Christian perspective, there are people that hold the stance as well. So, for example, we have Margaret Miles from the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley. And she sometimes critiques films for not offering heroes to their audiences. She approaches films from their ethical and theological dimension and then judges whether or not they fit, therefore advising the moviegoer. The center one is dialogue. And if you look out toward the aesthetic, that's really dialogue's focus probably a bit more than the ethical. The dialogue approach believes that Christian moviegoers should first watch a film on its own terms before entering into theological dialogue with it. And this goes back to that C.S. Lewis quote. So whether listening to Mozart or Woody Allen film, the audience must focus exclusively on the present for it to be authentic. We must enter it into its world. The posture is listening. Now, this doesn't make theology second in importance at all. The film experience must be completed from a theological perspective according to this approach. The aesthetic experience must be followed by the theology. The important thing is that film and theology really are brought together into a partnership, a two-way conversation, letting both sides be full partners in it. Now, the next one is appropriation, and this approach to film believes that film is capable of expanding the Christian's understanding. These films may celebrate humanity, or they may exercise a strong agony over moments where humanity is actually distorted. But in these films, one must be very careful not to baptize films as Christian when they're not. Now, they may offer great insight to the Christian viewer about humans. For example, The Matrix. Some of us have seen this baptized as Christian, but it's not. Another is Unforgiven or Gran Torino. The last one, Divine Encounter, is that place, those movies, that sometimes have the power to absolutely transport us or give us an experience of transcendence. So for me, the first time that this really happened many years ago was in a movie called Brother Sun, Sister Moon. And it was a story of St. Francis of Assisi. And what he did moved me so much that I knew that I wanted to go into urban ministry. I wanted to work out, work with the poor, and work with those who couldn't help themselves. And so indeed I did. I spent years working uh, not only with the poor, but with gang members and taggers and so forth, my kids growing up between the Bloods and the Crips. And that was very much coming from that transcendent moment in that theater from Brother Sun, Sister Moon. For other people, there has been Thomas Beckett. That was the one that really moved a friend of mine to go into the monastery and become a monk. 
which he's been for 25 years or 30 years now maybe. Babette's Feast has moved people in the same way. And I would suggest one for you scientists that is profoundly moving. Um, Stanley Kubrick said that it was the only masterpiece made in his lifetime. Now this film is only 50 minutes. In fact, it's a part of a whole series of 10 films that was made for television in Poland called the Decalogue. And the one he's talking about is Decalogue 1, where there is a man who is a scientist, a brilliant mathematician, and has a lovely son. The mother is not in the picture, but there's an aunt who takes care of him also. And the father and the son do everything and worship, in a sense, the computer. And all the calculations are made. They can turn the water off. They can turn the water uh, on. They can lock the doors because of what they've done with their computer. And the little boy wants skates for this pond down below their apartment building more than anything. So they calculate, and the father works it all out mathematically, and the little boy gets skates. And the father even goes down and checks out the water, makes sure everything's fine the night before. And the next day, the father's working at his computer, and his ink falls over and spills all over his work, all over his math and his plans. And then he hears the alarms ringing in the emergency um, truck. And he looks out the window and sees it and wonders, well, what has happened is his son is the one who has fallen through. And so go ahead and check out that film if you can, because it's this wonderful dynamic between what happens with us, with we who can worship science and math, and then how God enters in in certain ways. It's very spiritually moving in a powerful film. What these movies can do us, to us comes remarkably close to what we call faith, prophecy, and reverence. Beliefs about what films should be watched and how they should be received and what kinds of films should or should be not made by Christians often comes from surprising roots. Plato and Aristotle and the movies. Well, what we often assume are Christian values or biblical beliefs instead do have their roots in history and philosophy that are neither biblical nor are they Christian. But we build a Christian culture around these beliefs and they become a core set of values and expectations. Director-writer Ron Austin best addresses this issue in the Christian culture and context of movies. First of all, we have Plato's idealism, which I'm sure most of you are very familiar with because many of you are academics and you have studied more of a classical education. Stories and films in the theater that represent a model of behavior or are driven by a message have their roots in Plato's philosophy. The conflict within the drama is mythical and ideal. There's a clear protagonist that represents the good and an antagonist that's usually the evil guy, like John Wayne is always the hero on the horse that comes in. Many of the most famous Hollywood films, especially Westerns, represent this tendency. We have the Western genre with Ford and Capra, often representing idealized heroes who struggle against the corrupt villains. But we also have Star Wars, Superman, the X-Men series, and Lord of the Rings. 
But the other one we have is Plato's purgation of emotion. There's a very different tendency in drama, story, and film that does come from Plato. Its purpose is catharsis, a purgation of emotions. Although moral guidance may be present, the story leads to a more subjective realm of inner conflict, which we explore to face our fears and our desires. By identifying with the characters, our deep feelings and struggles rise to the surface and are purged, or at least they're confronted. Austin says, at best, this purgation leads to insight, but it doesn't necessarily clearly offer a moral message. The Platonic tendency is more attractive to Christians who are upset by bad language or viewing the ugliness of the soul. Although it's understandable that they want youth to watch movies that model good behavior, they don't understand the importance of being confronted with the ugly secrets of their own hearts. But only then can they enter those dark places that really do need purging. One way of labeling this is prescriptive, a moral guide or message-based film, as compared to descriptive film, a film that describes the way that we really are. When Christians are pressured into making these kinds of films, rarely do they end up with Star Wars or Lord of the Rings. Well-intentioned though they are, we tend to feel manipulated. We tend to sense that they ring untrue. And to these, generally only Christian audiences attend. A broad range of other films have echoes of the Christian message, are moral stories or redemptive, but these are designed around the story itself and not just the message. They may comfort us or inspire us, but there's a profound difference between these films and the ones that drag out what is inside us and make us face the truth of what we are. This is at the core of the Christian message. Cartina Richardson, in her blog, Mirror, Mirror, Motion Picture Commentary, and Christina, who is not a believer at all, talks about the deadly and the holy in cinema. The deadly is conventional cinema. It reassures us, makes us comfortable, allows our protective coverings to remain intact, revealing no truth. The holy is a cinema that seeks to make visible the invisible and desires to understand the spiritual and the philosophical. It peels us, disturbs us, will not leave us alone, but instead requires that we pick up that DVD once again, shove it into the player, and search for those buried coherences that take us deeper within and beyond. Now, while she cites films like Notting Hill as the comfort food to which she returns again and again, surprisingly, her primary example of deadly cinema is The King's Speech. But we counter, isn't the cinematography beautiful? The acting superb? How could she say that? Doesn't inspire us to push beyond our own disabilities and to become something more? But if we're honest, how many of us did this film really transform when we walked away from the theater? How many of us changed our vocation because of this film? Such cinema parades as holy only to mask what is truly holy. The truly holy requires us to pay attention, to struggle, to grasp hold of it. It is difficult. It may be disturbing. It requires, oh dear, suffering? 
The great writer and thinker R.J. Collingwood writes that the artist must prophesy, not in the sense that he foretells things to come, but in the sense that he tells his audience, at the risk of their displeasure, the secrets of their own hearts. Richardson suggests that the holiest of filmmakers is a filmmaker named Andrei Tarkovsky. And one of his films that he makes is about science, and he wrote it in counter to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he felt was far too distant. Tarkovsky writes, makes beautiful films that are meditative, very, very thoughtful, tend to be very slow. He was making them in the 70s and the 80s, and he passed away then late in the 80s. But he was a Russian, and his life had been transformed during the... Uh, the Stalinist era through seeing some old books on icons. And so eventually he became an Orthodox Christian, even though he was the most well-known filmmaker in the Soviet Union. Continued to have struggle over this because he tried to give his messages of the importance of the spiritual world. And so there's a sense he has that's like the icon of light always coming in from behind and the darkness in the front. And in Solaris, he enters into this different world, this planet, where there are cosmonauts that have discovered it. He sends a cosmonaut up because there is a problem. And when the cosmonaut gets there, he begins to realize that there's some kind of host intelligence on this planet. And what's happening is they change because this planet is somehow able to take their memories and turn them into real beings that they get confused by. And this happens to him because his wife, Hari, who has been dead 10 years, comes back to him. And ultimately, he has to deal with the way he's seeing the world in his consciousness or the way the world is really out there. What is real? Do I love this apparition, if you will, who has consciousness and she has thought, just no memory? Or do I not do this which I know is only conjured up and remember my dead wife? So these kinds of issues, thoughtful issues, that now we're confronting even more in cognitive neuroscience and being aware of how our brains work are very interesting thoughts for us to ponder as believers and the kinds of things and questions we should also be posing to the world. Now let's think about Christians in science and film. There are a plethora of options for people who are interested in film, who are scientists today. Uh, one of those things are, of course, making documentaries. You do research. There are, we have some um, papers and presentations this weekend that are so fascinating and so insightful that they can make documentaries. Or narrative stories, like Solaris, like Decalogue. There are so many different kinds of films that have really dealt with scientific issues. 2001, A Space Odyssey, Contact, um, many others. That these kinds of films, in a narrative sense, also are ready. And as you know people, or want to know people, have ideas, you can share them with many of us, and we are willing to sit down and talk with you about some of those possible options. Another thing is that Scientists like people in medicine uh, or people in engineering are really needed to provide the information for many of the films. And this is really desirable in Hollywood as well. 
what I would suggest is if you're really interested in something in the area of film, you come to our panel discussion tomorrow night and we'll be able to talk about it further. Or please come and talk to us because we have experts in Hollywood who have, are strong believers and have been working on their crafts in all of these different areas for so many years. And it's a tendency of people to say, oh, I have this great idea. I'll go do it within my own context. And then they don't understand the complexities of it, and it doesn't go where they want it to go. But even if it does stay within your own area, we might have some wisdom to be able to offer. And as we begin to partner more and more as Christians together in the media, in film, and in science, we can assist each other. And we want to be there to do that for you. Now, I do have a caution. I think I, there are some propositional consequences. Let's think back again about the consciousness and how the consciousness works. There's a pre-conscious, a core consciousness that scientists, uh, cognitive neuroscientists say that we have. Antonio Damasio really explores this. That pre-conscious, pre-reflective self that constitutes the unity of my being, the inimitable me that moves about the world, attention floating, then suddenly focusing on a known face, then kind of floating again. But it's always me. Cognitive neuroscience says that this level of consciousness exists before the higher level of consciousness where our language, memory, and reason occur. At this level, only the present moment exists. Our motion and consciousness reside here, and they are so wed and bound inextricably together that you cannot have damage to one without having damage to the other. Even though it's a pre-reflective level, wordless stories are formed here. This gives us a hint of how deeply woven stories are into the self and into the fabric of our being. The basic continuity of being and continuity of self that exists at this level is not lost as the complexity of our self grows. The complexity of our consciousness grows through language, memory, and reason. I think this is very interesting, though, the way the levels of consciousness work. And I think, what if, analogously, the body of Christ is similar? What if beneath our differences in language, memory, and reason, which often tend to magnify our polemics, there is a unity of being, a continuity by which we are inextricably bound to each other in the present moment in Christ's body. What if together we are to have a wordless story, an inseparable unity between the emotion of Christ's love and the awareness of Christ's body in the world? And what if we pushed so hard against the boundaries of that unconscious unity as Christ's body that we have divided self against self until we no longer resemble a body, a body, the body of Christ, any longer. Until only memory, language, and reason are left, fighting between themselves. Polemics, not love, becomes our image in the world. I would suggest that a latent enlightenment thinking among Christians, a need to prove our case to the world and to each other, is at the root of Hollywood's prejudice against Christianity for decades. Now, when I say Hollywood, I don't mean that everyone in industry has the same view of their own spirituality. So, for example, some are pr practicing, although cultural, probably Jews, 
Many people consider themselves spiritual but are open to many paths. And a few are atheists. And there are others. Yet when you ask them what they think about Christians, they don't immediately respond with love for God, care for the world, or fascinating thinking. Instead, they're more likely to say narrow-minded, polemical. And if you ask them what Christians believe, they may see, say, Jesus Christ, if they're Jewish. But if you ask them, they're also just as likely to say against gay marriage or against evolution, against abortion. What they've done is they've taken bits and pieces of the self that they think is Christianity, all of Christianity, and created it in their own caricature to then present it to the world. Now, while the, some of these beliefs are crucial and very precious to us, I would like to suggest that if we carefully consider if this is really the last word that we want them to hear or the world to hear about Christianity, if not, then how do we alter this perception? What kinds of films can we make to change this, to give a broader view of really what the gospel message is and of what Christianity is? Consider how the glory of God speaks to us from the farthest reaches of the universe, as well as the complexities of the embodied brain, or the miracle of the Higgs boson and what it says about the unity of creation. Why don't Christians make, or at least finance, documentaries like Planet Earth or Cave of Forgotten Dreams, the story of the earliest paintings of humankind in the Chavot Caves of southern France, this film was directed by Werner Herzog, and these awe the viewer. Now, one thing to note is, surprisingly, we can get away with scripture more than we think we can in film, in television, wherever we use it, because the Bible is considered by all as poetry and as literature. Wouldn't evoking wonder and awe or provoking significant and disturbing questions such as those posed by Decalogue 1 or Solaris by Tarkovsky be likely to reveal the glory of God, the hope of the cross to the world, a world which is, as theologian and preacher Barbara Brown Taylor says, quote, in an age of information overload, when a vast variety of media delivers news faster than any of us can digest, when many of us have at least two email addresses, two telephone numbers, one fax number, and at least anything it needs for any of us is more information. The last thing then we need is more information about God. We need the practice of incarnation by which God saves the lives of those whose intellectual ascent has turned dry as dust, who've run frighteningly low on the bread of life, who are dying to know more about God in their bodies, not know more about God, but to know more God in this embodied self. Our embodied brains are starved to know more God in our bodies. I believe that the embodied visions offered by film can indeed offer us the bread of life. But to receive it, we have to struggle with it, like Jacob and like Joseph had to struggle. To find that place, to be able to offer that surrender that is total and that's complete before the awesome power that is God.
Remember what I said about how viewers receive message-oriented art? That we are likely to turn it off because we feel manipulated? This is hardest for us because we really do believe we have the answer to humankind's search. Their search for meaning, for beauty, for truth. And we want to give the answer. Today, propositional documentaries and narratives, rational arguments, or emotive arguments are effective only if they are what the public really wants to hear anyway. Thus, an inconvenient truth was hugely popular because so much came to the public already from environmental messages, schools, media, the laws. And The Cove, the 2011 Academy Award-winning documentary about dolphin killing in Japan, was a success for similar reasons. The more difficult task you know is to justify or prove something that is against public sentiment. While this has always been the case, it's now more difficult than ever. Offering propositional truths or evidence for something the audience has no predisposition to believe has culture stacked against it in this, this post-enlightenment era. There's a, turn to, against, there's a turn to language, but there is a turn against referential truth. There's a turn to social knowledge, that all knowledge is only what we talk about amongst each other. We can't know anything beyond. And against metaphysical knowledge, a turn to pragmatic relativity, and a turn against truth as a block of knowledge, or as if it's an isolatable block of reality itself. It's no longer accepted. So I'd like to make a suggestion. Perhaps speaking outside of our Christian enclaves to the public around us will require lashing ourselves to the cross, a dying to the desire needed to give answers or to prove ourselves in a desired way. Perhaps we need instead to become provocateurs or evocateurs, offering questions, stories, and images, guiding instead of spelling out answers. Perhaps the time has come for us, like most diligent scientists, to ask the very best questions, the questions that provoke and disturb us, that peel us, or questions that lead us into paths of awe and wonder. One film that's come out recently, The Tree of Life, and won the top award in the world at the at, um, Cannes Film Festival in 2011, The Palme d'Or, is a film that is similar to this. And I would encourage you, if you haven't viewed it, to view it. That is the most prized film award in the world. The film is permeated with haunting questions, cascading scenes of creation, and throughout the story, a silent but constant character. The brilliant and luminous sky reaching persistently toward the darkness that is Earth and humankind. In it, you will see the very first is not a scene, but it is a verse from Job. And it talks freely about nature and about grace, the characters do in the film. And when they face grief and have to enter in to those grieving places, we see these amazing films, these amazing scenes of the world, the creation of the world with the questions asked. And the way the questions begin to be answered those questions of humanity, those questions about God, who God is and how we struggle and how we grieve, 
are right there in this amazing film, and this film won the top award in the entire world. We can make films like this. They can be more inspiring, more story-oriented, uh, story but we can do this. We can be called to evoke, to provoke, to create awe and wonder. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in the acceptance of his Nobel Prize, gave these words in his speech. Not everything that can be named, not everything can be named. Some things draw us beyond words. Art can warm even a chilled and sunless soul to an exalted spiritual experience. Through art, we can occasionally receive, indistinctly, briefly, revelations of the like, which cannot be achieved by rational thought. It is like that small mirror of legend. You look into it, but instead of yourself, you glimpse for a moment the inaccessible, a realm forever beyond reach, and your soul begins to ache. 